0: Alleluia. Christ is risen. In In past years, I confess, I've been so anxious about not forgetting to leave out the Alleluia's during Lent that being able to say them again was as much mental relief as worship. But this year, I have so been looking forward to saying that word again. On Good Friday, my family and I recorded an Easter greeting for our old church, which my family still attends. It was almost physically uncomfortable to go from watching the live stream of the service at the National Cathedral to smiling and saying, Happy Easter. It's hard even to remember what things were like when Lent began, when my concerns about hand-washing involved the ashes I had imposed on Ash Wednesday. But today, we celebrate the resurrection. Specifically, we celebrate the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ who died on a Friday, was no longer dead when Sunday came. Because of that reality, nothing has been the same since. Not least because all of us who are Christ's people live in anticipation of one day living the same resurrected life he lives. And as we talked about two weeks ago, we get to begin living that resurrection life now, as in right now. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is what it looks like for us to live that resurrection life now, as we grapple with all of the changes that this coronavirus has brought to our community. Here's the short version. We need to help our neighbors who have been affected. I'm gonna give you three reasons why. First reason is that it's the right thing to do. Millions of people are unemployed today who had a good solid job a month ago. And while we as a country are doing a lot to provide for them, that help won't provide everything they need. There will be people who fall through the cracks, who just get missed by some of these programs. My daughters are 17 and 18. So as far as the feds are concerned, they're not children. So we won't get a check for them. But since there are dependents, they won't get a check for them either. Now, Mary and I are both fully employed for now, but for a family that's facing job loss and feeding teenagers, that's going to get rough. Someone asked John the Baptist how they ought to live in light of the fact that Messiah was about to show up. Well, if you have two coats, he said, give one of them to somebody who doesn't have one. Likewise, if you have food. I don't think anybody's going to be needing any warm coats for a while, but there will be a lot of our neighbors who need to find food for themselves and their families. NEON, the North County Emergency Outreach Network, was closed initially due to the coronavirus, but they have reopened to provide food assistance. We just got an email from them this week letting us know what they need. I'll be happy to share that with you. Just email me and I'll forward it to you. If you have food in your pantry right now, I think you know what John the Baptist would say to you. But apart from the economic hit people are taking, there is a huge emotional toll on all of us. Anxiety is through the roof all over, and especially for people like supermarket employees, there's still around a lot of people all day. Medical professionals and first responders are taking all the precautions they can. They've had to resign themselves to the fact that their risk of contracting this disease is extremely high, as is then the risk of passing it along to their loved ones. When you're feeling anxious, it means a lot to know that people care about you. So tell them and thank the people who are still working. Lonely people are all that much lonelier now that they can't go to the coffee shop, the senior center, the ball game, the bar, the church. Even people who aren't particularly lonely are feeling the isolation. All of us know people who are living alone or who have limited mobility. So pick up the phone and call them. Ask them if there's anything they need, anything you can pick up for them when you go to Giant. Hopefully not the virus from a shopping cart. But you know this. I know this. I mean, everybody knows this, right? So it's the right thing to do isn't a particularly Christian reason, and that is what we come here for. After all, I'm here to deliver good news, not good advice. The fact is, too, that we know that knowing something is the right thing to do isn't enough to make sure we do it. How many of us are still keeping those resolutions we made at New Year's? Heck, how many of our Lenten disciplines survived Corona-tide? Confession. Mine didn't. Now, we're going to need something more than just knowing it's the right thing to do. So let me give you a second reason, one that comes from the story of that disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who got to the tomb first. Some scholars believe this disciple is the same one who wrote the gospel, so the author is subtly but definitely pointing out to his audience, some of whom would have known both of them, that he could run faster than Peter. John tells us that when he got to the tomb, he saw that it was empty and believed. This whole seeing and believing motif shows up time and time again in John's gospel. You may be thinking right now of the story of Jesus and Thomas, where Thomas says he won't believe that Jesus is back from the dead unless he can verify it personally. You see and you believe, Jesus says to Thomas. How much more blessed is the one who does not see and yet believes But that's next Sunday's Gospel reading. We'll leave it till then. Seeing and believing is in John's Gospel, and it's in his first epistle as well. He starts off that letter by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So for John, seeing is believing, or at least it was for him and for the community of people sending this letter. And since he's writing to people who didn't have the privilege he did of seeing the risen Lord in person, he's making it clear that he really did see Jesus raised from the dead. He uses two different verbs for seeing in the first verse. He says, yeah, we looked at it with our own eyes. We really saw it. And in the second verse, he says that having seen what he saw, he is testifying to it. That's serious language. Basically, John is saying, You can count me guilty of violating the ninth commandment if what I'm telling you isn't true. Peter uses the same language in the passage in Acts that we read. Peter said, we saw it, and now we're testifying to it. And then toward the end of his gospel, and this is at the end of chapter 20, which again we'll get to next week, John says, I'm telling you about all these things Jesus did in order that you may believe, and by believing Have life in his name. Well, that's great. Except the problem is none of us is an apostle. I know some people in this church have had some very intense and vivid spiritual experiences. But to my knowledge, nobody since Paul has had the risen Christ show up to them in person in a way anybody else could attest to. So we're not in a position to give the kind of testimony John could. But we can testify to the testimony of others like John and Matthew and Mark and Luke and Paul and Peter. And we can testify to the experiences of Jesus that we have had. Many of which involve his people showing up and ministering faithfully in his name. He saw and believed. How will our neighbors believe in the love of Jesus unless they see it lived out? They won't see it lived out unless his people do precisely that. Peter said in his first letter that we should live such good lives among the pagans that, as Tyndall put it in his 1526 translation, that they which backbite you as evildoers may see your good works and praise God in the day of visitation. I'm sure you've heard people describe this current situation as unprecedented, but it isn't, not at all. This is not the first global pandemic, It probably won't be the last. But what have God's people done among them in the past? The early church earned a reputation as people who cared for plague victims while everyone else was leaving town to get away from the contagion. In fact, the pagan Roman emperor Julian, back in the 60s, that's the 360s, started up benevolent works so that Christians weren't the only ones caring for the needy. It is a disgrace, he wrote, that the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. In the Episcopal Church on September 9th, we commemorate Constance and her companions, otherwise known as the Martyrs of Memphis. The Martyrs of Memphis were Episcopal nuns and priests who, in, who gave their lives caring for victims of the yellow fever when it hit that city in 1878. And while there's something kind of icky about describing care for our neighbors as good PR for Jesus, It is, in fact, just that. Maybe it will feel a little less icky if we remember that Jesus told us to do it. Let your light so shine before men, he said, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And that gives us a third reason, and maybe that reason will help us when we don't find the other two reasons compelling enough to make a donation or call a friend or offer to pick up milk for our neighbor. That third reason is worship. Paul says in Romans that we are to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices. And he says that this is only reasonable. If it's reasonable to do this in normal times, how much more reasonable is it to do so when our ability to worship in other ways is so severely constrained? Our word worship comes from the old English worship, that is, treating something or someone as deserving of the honor befitting them. That language stuck around even in some early marriage liturgies. Cranmer's Prayer Book of 1549 has the groom say, when giving the ring to the bride, With my body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow. Now, that doesn't mean what you're thinking, although I suppose that enters in. With my body I thee worship means I will give you, and only you, all of the honor, respect, love, and, yes, physical affection that my wife rightly deserves. Ascribe to the Lord, the psalmist says, the honor due his name. That's worship. We do that when we sing hymns, when we celebrate the Eucharist, when we throw smoke around in this building, when we do all those things that we do in church that we think of as worship, but we also worship God by living as his resurrection people. In our passage two weeks ago, Paul said, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life even to your mortal bodies. How? Through his spirit who lives in you. After all, Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, it's God who who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So this people's work of worshiping God by ministering his love to those in need isn't something that we have to accomplish by our own power. If I read Paul right, we really can't anyway. And trying to do so will just leave us feeling guilty about how lousy we are at it. But if we understand ourselves to be Jesus's people, doing Jesus's work by Jesus's power, with Jesus's resources, well, hopefully that will enable us to get over ourselves enough to do some good. Amen. And happy Easter.